because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. For those of you who are watching, we're doing our third week in video form. I'm experimenting with different kinds of software, and as you can see behind me, if you can see uh, different backgrounds. Right now I have an image of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, my book, or my main book, and The Human Flourishing Project, my other podcast. Okay, so there are three big stories I want to cover this week, so I'm just going to jump right into them. And I hope that I have mastered this new software for switching uh, among the screens. You'll see that I have some slides this week, which I'm hoping will make the material more interesting and easier to retain. It's possible there will be some user error, but I will try my best. Okay, so the first story is all about what is being called phase four of the coronavirus or COVID-19 relief. And my basic idea here is that green energy mandates would be a death blow to economic recovery. So just uh, for a little background on the story. So I mean, the background, this is as I see it, it's not always described this way, but you know, the, the policies that we have right now, what I call universal isolation policies, these are destroying the productive ability of tens of millions of Americans, and, and in a significant way, hundreds of millions of Americans. I mean, the majority of the country. And so you see different kinds of headlines here, and you've probably heard about just record unemployment filings and just walking around anywhere. You're going to see a massive increase in homelessness and hopelessness uh, for that matter. So there's a question of, is the, are we having the right policies? I would say no. And I'll, I'll describe, I've described in the past, what I think is wrong about our policies and why, at the very least, any isolation policies should be much more selective and targeted. But in any case, there's still the question of, okay, even if this was necessary, what do we what do we do? What do we do to make up for it? Because we have people's livelihoods just being completely uh, compromised right now, and in some, in many cases, even even destroyed. So. There's a lot of things we can say about what what should be done. I, I think in general, it, the goal should be let people be productive again as soon as possible and make up for any kinds of, insofar as is possible, any sorts of destruction of productivity. I think the extent to which you can make up for that is very limited because you can't just, like time lost is time lost. So I think there are limits to how effective policies can be. But I think there are two things we should definitely not do that that should be obvious, but unfortunately, policymakers are not treating these as obvious. So one is we definitely don't want to do anything that further destroys uh, American productivity. Our productivity is just taking such a massive hit, particularly anyone whose productivity involves in-person interaction, and to some degree or another, that's just about everyone. And then the second is we definitely don't want to do anything that raises consumer prices because people are much poorer right now, and so they definitely don't need higher consumer prices. Now, unfortunately, one of the leading policies on the table is green energy. And you'll hear different kinds of policies like wind production tax credit. But the, the broad idea around all of these is now is the time to mandate green energy, and in particular, solar and wind energy. And I think this is exactly the wrong policy because it's going to do something that is going to 
uh, do exactly the two things we want to avoid. It's going to make us less productive and it's going to increase prices. And that is making energy more expensive. So the fundamental thing is if you mandate unreliable wind and solar energy, you're going to make energy much more expensive. You're going to make us less productive and you're going to make consumer prices go up. So I've talked about this issue many times, but here's here's a new graphic that my colleague Stefan Hanna uh, happens to be from Germany, and this is actually of Germany. And so he's showing a situation that, that captures what's wrong with trying to rely on unreliable fuel sources like solar and wind. And this is in Germany, where there's been a huge, huge, what they would call investment in solar and, and wind. And as, as we'll see, has come at just on its own massive cost to people throughout the country. And what you see is sometimes you'll see, so if you look at the upper right, you'll see, oh, wow, wind and solar in terms of electricity, that's not all of energy because most of their energy is for transportation, fuel and heating and other uses that aren't electricity. Also industrial heat and home heat are included under heating. But you still have here, electricity It's pretty impressive. Wind and solar are delivering 90% of the load. So you'll hear a new, you'll see a news story that says, oh, wind and solar 90% isn't that great. But what they don't show you is in the middle, you can see, oh, wow, just within a 24-hour period, so one was on April 5th, uh, and then the other's on April 4th, the night before, wind and solar are 6% of the load. So they're, it's, it's almost going down to 0% just of the electricity. So here's a question. Actually, before I get to the question, I'll just make this point, that when you're thinking of the cost of solar and wind, you have to recognize that it's unreliable, so the infrastructure you have to pay for, you not only have to pay for the unreliable energy infrastructure, so the solar panels, the wind turbines, the transmission lines, and then all the mining and manufacturing and transportation that goes into those, but you also need a reliable energy infrastructure. In Germany's case, particularly because they're anti-nuclear, which we'll talk more about soon, uh, you have, so you have, um, uh, lost my train of thought for a second, so you have you know, substantially coal, gas, other reliable forms of energy on other grids. It's it's a lot of nuclear in Germany, still quite a bit of nuclear, but they're trying to phase it out. So whenever you hear about the, you think about the cost, it's always the cost of the unreliable energy infrastructure plus the reliable energy infrastructure. Now here's a simple math problem that most people don't uh, aren't aware of. So which costs more? Having the just a 100% reliable energy infrastructure with things like coal, gas, and nuclear, or having that same infrastructure plus the unreliable energy infrastructure? And the answer is it costs a lot more to have both infrastructures, and it's incredibly duplicative. Now, you can say, oh, we're going to save a lot of money on fuel because the fuel comes from the sun and the wind. But a couple problems there. One is that nuclear, coal, gas aren't very high in cost in terms of the fuel. And the other thing is that because the unreliables require a huge degree of reliable use, they are always going to use a lot of fuel. But not only that, they they actually, they require the fuel to go up and down. So if we go back to here, like you can see that it's going up and up and down and up and down. And this is this is just in a day. This is happening throughout the year and through seasons and stuff. And when you cycle an engine up and down, it becomes much less efficient. This is why when you drive in stop and go traffic, your engine is much less efficient. So what happens is not only do you have to pay for this extra infrastructure, but you have to use the fossil fuels really inefficiently. And so what happens is overall the cost just goes up. So Germany 
you know, they're getting 10% of their overall energy from less than 10% overall from solar and wind, and yet their electricity prices have been doubling in the past couple decades since they started these uh, initiatives. So, and if if you try to scale it up even more, it becomes even more duplicative and you get more problems. And then if you try to cut back on the reliables, then you run into huge reliability problems because you're, uh, you need electricity when you don't have uh, electricity. So you're talking about some combination of prices going way up and reliability going down. Now, as I've talked about, this is really bad for productivity, which is one of the things we need to be really concerned about because it's already being destroyed by the whole coronavirus slash coronavirus response. And so there's just this general truth that the higher cost energy is, uh, the higher cost everything is. And it's because the higher cost energy is, and we'll focus on American energy here because we're talking about American policies, the less productive and competitive American industry will be. So for example, uh, you know, here's a story about Australian aluminum smelters are not sustainable due to high power costs. So they are mandating what I call unreliable solar and wind, then their energy prices go up, and then they're not competitive with other countries. So, I mean, just think about it. This is the last thing we want right now. We have people in this country who are there, you know, they have productive jobs, and in many cases, they're not allowed to go to those jobs because of fear uh, of virus transmission. And then we're saying, oh, on top of that, we're going to jack up your energy costs so that producing something here is even more expensive than it is in other countries. And then at the same time, if that's not bad enough, uh, the cost of energy raising that is going to make the cost of all the different goods go up. So you know, you have these different kinds of stories about places that are mandating unreliables, mandating green energy. They're having high costs uh, in everything, not just energy bills, but even things like food bills, because food, a huge amount of food is the energy cost. As I, I will often use the expression, fossil fuels are the food of food. And you need, you know, we, we, modern agriculture relies on machine power and machine power relies on machine calories, which both power the machines and then they are used themselves to make the machines. You know, they power other machines that make the machines. And so anytime you raise the cost of energy, you raise the cost of machine power, which means you raise the cost of everything. So when we when you hear about these proposals, oh, let's have let's have more clean energy, let's have more green energy, what they're saying is let's take another massive hit to productivity. Let's make America even poorer. And it's worth saying most countries are not going to be dumb enough to do this. And we're already seeing this even before all the COVID issues where Japan announced that it's going to use a lot more coal plants in part because it's shutting down nuclear. And then China it just keeps building more and more and more uh, coal plants every year. And the reason is that is the low cost, reliable energy source for them. And most of the time in most places, fossil fuels are by far the lowest cost way to produce reliable energy. And so people are generally going to use that. And if you're thinking about well, we oh, I, I want to see emissions go down around the world. Well, you have to recognize that that's not going to happen until and unless lower carbon energy is actually lower cost. And so what you should think about is what kinds of policies can actually make lower carbon energy lower cost. 
And I think there's above all one thing that we should be focused on. And it's not saying, oh, we need to use the sun and the wind for some reason because they're, quote, renewable. There's no reason to restrict yourself if your concern is CO2 emissions. I think the number one thing should be let's decriminalize nuclear energy. Nuclear energy, that is a reliable source of energy. It doesn't have the same unreliability problems that solar and wind do. It's currently more expensive than fossil fuels in most places, but it's not incredibly more expensive. So you have France and Sweden have a lot of nuclear and they have way cheaper electricity prices than Germany. And if we decriminalized it, which means we get rid of a lot of, of irrational regulations that treat nuclear as much more dangerous than it is, then it's very possible it could become cost competitive. And you should have the same mentality with things like natural gas. Let's remove restrictions on natural gas that prevent it, th that if we remove them, it can become even more uh, competitive, particularly around the world, including places where you can transport it using things like liquefied natural gas slash LNG. But if you care about reducing emissions, the whole thing has to be, how do we make lower carbon energy lower cost? If, if you think that you're just going to make higher carbon energy high cost for us, and then everyone else is going to accept huge costs on them. That wasn't happening even when the world felt rich two months ago. It's definitely not happening now. You're, you're seeing in Europe, people are starting to abandon some of these green promises, which they weren't, they weren't meeting anyway. So you really have to recognize the reality that no, the only way emissions are going to go down, and we could talk about to what extent that's a priority. I've talked about, I don't think that's at all the highest priority. I do believe that emissions do have a warming influence on climate, but I don't think it's at all a catastrophic influence. And I think it's much more important that 8 billion people get empowered by low-cost energy, including the 3 billion who have virtually none of it. I think that's much more important than controlling the exact amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. But in any case, the only way to get lower carbon energy worldwide is going to be uh, making lower carbon energy cheap. And yet, what happens in terms of nuclear, the most promising form of lower carbon energy, it is massively opposed by many of the advocates of the Green New Deal. So we had Elizabeth Warren against them, Bernie Sanders uh, against them. You know, he, he just dropped out of the race. Uh, but, you know, Joe Biden has been lukewarm at best. And when something is criminalized and needs to be decriminalized, it's not enough to be lukewarm about it. You need to champion it. So any politician that claims to care about lowering emissions, one of the litmus tests is, are they supporting nuclear energy? And if in response to, if in terms of the recovery, the whole focus should be, let's, let's decriminalize good things that are being irrationally restricted. That needs to be happening in healthcare, and it's starting to happen because of all these irrational restrictions that have made it a lot harder to fight COVID-19 than it should be, including all the crazy restrictions on testing that have just left, a, left us completely flat-footed. And in general, what sh we should be looking for is, hey, let's get out of this by making ourselves an even freer country, not let's get out of this by making ourselves an even more uh, restricted country. So that's, that is the first uh, story of the day. Now let's jump right into the uh, next story which has to do with a tweet by President Obama. And I, I think President Obama is drawing exactly the wrong lessons on pandemic preparedness, or he's saying something, I should say he's saying something that has a little bit of truth to it, 
but he's ignoring a huge error that he and many others have made. So here's, here's the tweet in question. We've seen all too terribly the consequences of those who denied warnings of a pandemic. We can't afford any more consequences of climate denial. All of us, especially young people, have to demand better of our government at every level and vote this fall. Well, I definitely believe we should be demanding better of our government in this and members of all parties. There's a ton to criticize and I've criticized in, um, in other places, but there's this seeming analogy of, oh, well, the idea is to flesh it out what he's implying. It's just a tweet, but he's saying, well, there, you know, these scientists have warned us that we're causing a climate catastrophe and we didn't listen to them. Uh, and just as we didn't listen to the scientists who warned about this pandemic catastrophe. So one thing that's interesting to look at is, okay, well, President Obama, you were in a position uh, to do a lot about pandemics in the past and to bring a lot of attention uh, to pandemics. So one thing I decided to look at is, okay, well, in your public communications over the years, how much did you talk about pandemics? So what I did is I searched, um, I searched on uh, Twitter and I did the, like the Twitter historical search. And so the first thing I searched for is, okay, what did President Obama historically say throughout all of his history on Twitter? What did he say about uh, pandemics? Because he has a big, he had a big public forum. He still does. And so now we look at this and I'm just going to go down it. Okay. So we see March 17th. Okay. Everyone's talking about it now. And th these are a little out of order. We see stuff back to 2016. Okay. But this is the gun quote unquote epidemic. And then, okay, this is the tweet I mentioned and okay. Gun violence epidemic pandemic, but this is new. This is all March. Okay. So what does he said? This is searching the whole history March. Okay. Yeah. Everyone's talking about it in March. Okay. He talks about Ebola in 2014, uh, March this year. Okay, crime epidemic, AIDS epidemic. Now you might think this is going to be a long time because he must talk about this a lot, but you're going to see it's actually quite a short page. So uh, it talks about insurance, March 4th, coronavirus. Okay, 2013, AIDS epidemic. You're not seeing anything about warning about pandemic uh, preparedness. And there are definitely some people who've been warning about it, uh, as we'll see, but it it has not been uh, Barack Obama and many of the other politicians now saying, oh, we should have listened to the scientists. It's interesting that they are not uh, doing this. Now, so I, as I mentioned, some people have been warning about this kind of thing. So a friend of our, or the show, actually several years ago, I had on Dr. Amish Adalja to talk about the threat of a pandemic, including what needs to be done about it. And so here we have some quotes from him. Uh, these are earlier quotes, but he, he's referencing uh, in particular, let's look at, at uh, number two. Once SARS appeared in 2003 and we knew that coronaviruses had this potential, it really was imperative that we develop countermeasures to be able to take coronaviruses off the pandemic list. And now it's 17 years later, it's now 17 years later, and we're seeing what happens when you don't have vaccines. So people like Dr. Adalja have been sounding the alarm, but why haven't they been listened to? Well, one thing we can see is if we look at President Obama's uh, tweets, now let's look at, let's look at um, what he has to say about climate and how many times has he, has he tweeted about climate change. If we look at this, now this is going to be a long scroll and this isn't even the whole history. If I look through it, it's just 
it's all it, it it goes only back to 2016 because he's been talking about it so much uh, that they, I don't know they're not even they won't even show you enough results. This is all you know recent stuff. So what what's been happening here? Interestingly, I mean we can keep going down, keep going down, keep going down. Um, is just he's been really fixated on this issue of climate. He hasn't been broadly speaking, looking at a whole variety of threats that specialized scientific knowledge can tell us about, and then really selecting them and drawing attention to a lot of them and being proportional uh, about them, as, as we'll see, it's, there's, this, there's this real fixation um, on climate. So let's go back here. So not many people, including President Obama, from either party and not many public officials have been talking about pandemics. What they've been talking about, though, is climate and catastrophic uh, climate change. And this is something that has been worrying me for a while. And I've, I've talked about this in the past, how I mean, one thing, one refrain of mine is, and I'm not claiming I'm some visionary on pandemics, I'm not, but the thing I would refer to often was in particular, the thing that bothered me was uh, antibiotic uh, resistant bacteria. And the reason I generally worry about biological things, I worry about biological threats because I'm really concerned about things that deliberately want to hurt us. Now, in a sense, a bacteria or a virus doesn't want to hurt us. It just wants to survive and it comes at our expense. But nevertheless, its interests are against ours. Whereas with climate, despite the way it's portrayed, when we increase the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, there's no forces that are angry at us, though it's often portrayed that way. It's just, oh, there's a change in the system. And there's a question of, okay, what changes does that lead to? And how big are they? And how many are positive? and how many are negative, but there's not actually any force that is antagonistic uh, to us. It could be that the new arrangement with more CO2 is better. It could be that it's worse, but it doesn't have a goal that's really against us. Whereas with these organisms, they do actually have goals against us. And so if we don't have the means to deal with them, that's been scary to me uh, for a long time, much, much scarier than climate. But for most people, climate has been, and most officials, climate has been the obsession. For example, uh, President Obama, as his head science advisor appointed this man, John Holdren. And so John Holdren, as I've documented in the moral case for fossil fuels, he predicted in the mid-1980s that there'd be a billion climate-related deaths from famine by the year 2020, which we are now at. And instead, there's actually been a mass feeding of the world. The world is much better fed now than it was in the mid-80s, largely because of fossil fuels, fossil-fueled agriculture, uh, specifically diesel-powered tractors and natural gas-generated uh, fertilizer, that has helped us feed a world of 8 billion better than the world, world of 4 billion was fed uh, several decades ago. So you've had this track record of people claiming that we're causing catastrophic climate change, and that's been the fixation, and it's been to the exclusion of everything else, even though if we look at the data, there is no climate catastrophe. This is an important distinction. Climate change and climate catastrophe are not the same thing. I do believe there's been some climate change. We've increased the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from 0.03% to 0.04%, and we can expect that we'll have some warming influence, and I believe that it has. But overall, the real question is, is this something that has made climate more dangerous for human beings, and is it on track? And the data I always point to that are always denied 
by the so-called climate believers are the data on climate-related deaths. Or you can think of it as the climate death rate. You know, what percentage of people die from climate-related causes like extreme heat, extreme cold, flood, um, drought, etc. And if we look at the data from nonpartisan sources, it's unambiguous. As we've put more CO2 into the atmosphere, as which is a byproduct of getting more energy from fossil fuels, climate-related deaths have gone way down. They've gone down about 98% over the last century. So the climate death rate has is 150th of what it used to be. So there is no climate catastrophe. And the basic logic is that nature doesn't give us a safe climate that we make dangerous. It gives us a very dangerous climate that we need to make safe. And with fossil-fueled machine power, billions of people have, have made themselves far safer from all kinds of climate dangers. And there's every reason to believe we can do so in uh, the future. But because there's been this fixation on climate and this catastrophizing on climate, it's totally monopolized people's concern about risk. And so all the focus has been, oh, what are we doing to climate? Uh, how do we deal with that? And, and there's not even much of a focus on how to deal with it because the only way you could really deal with it in a practical way is figure out how to make lower carbon energy cheap. Otherwise, as I've talked about, most people aren't going to do it because energy is so valuable that people aren't going to sacrifice much in terms of uh, less available energy to them. But and so people are, it's mostly symbolic stuff where people just are saying, oh, well, I support solar, I support wind, I buy a Tesla, which is an overwhelmingly fossil fueled car in, in every dimension. But there's just been this fixation and that you, we only have so much attention. So this has been a huge, huge mistake to fixate on this real climate change, but imaginary climate catastrophe to the exclusion of everything else. And President Obama is one of the guiltiest uh, people here. When, when he was running for president, he talked about slowing the rise of the seas, which he definitely didn't do, uh, but he didn't talk much about pandemic preparedness. So this is, this is the problem with climate change fixation. It blinds you to real threats. So what should we do? Well, the, the grain of truth in what President Obama is saying, what others are saying is science definitely needs to inform policy. We need to be, when we're concerned about different threats to our lives and our freedom, we need the best science possible. But we have to do a couple things. One is we have to be proportional about threats. So we have to look not just at something that happens to be presented to us, but we have to look at what are all the different threats and what um, what could those amount to? And this is a really good time to start thinking about, hey, what are the next things that could happen? And there, I think there's a lot in the software realm that we could be concerned about in terms of hacking. There's other stuff in the biological realm that we should be concerned about. Hopefully there's more attention being paid there. I think the stability of our grid is a huge, huge issue, both because we're undercutting the reliability of our electricity sources uh, and also because it's just, it's just a, a target for different kinds of terrorism. And it, man, if you think having a virus, this caliber of virus going around, and it's a pretty bad virus, but if you think this virus is bad, think about the power going out for a few weeks. I mean, that is that is the complete destruction of our ability to live. Eight, eight billion people or 330 million people in the US, like we cannot live without electricity uh, for any meaningful amount of time. So we should really be looking at these things. We should look at them proportionally. And part of that is we want to be looking at them 
from a human flourishing perspective. So we really want to focus on how big is this, how big is this threat from the perspective of human life? And part of what I've argued is going wrong with the climate issue is people are acting like if we're changing climate, that's a bad and catastrophic thing versus looking at, oh, well, how much are we changing climate? Is that bad at all? And even if it is a little bit bad, how much good comes with it? So we need to be proportional and look at things from a human flourishing perspective and look forward. But part of that is we cannot be fi- we cannot afford to continue to be fixated uh, on this one thing because there are many, many, many bigger concerns. And we, we don't just want to learn the lesson here that pandemics are a problem, although that's a good lesson to learn, but that there are a lot of threats that we need to keep our eyes uh, on. Okay, final story uh, of today, just seeing how much time we have left. All right, we're doing pretty uh, pretty good on time. Final story today, and at the future, I will be, I will, I will be unrecognizably uh, slick with this, uh, with this interface. Probably all these comments are being lost on the, the uh, audio listeners, but I'm just uh, shifting among or switching among the different sets of slides. So I want to talk again about COVID-19. I've been thinking about this all the time. And, and as I've said in previous episodes, I think I have a contribution to make in terms of how to think about this issue. And in particular, thinking about the full context of this issue and really trying to look at how are all the, like, what is, what's the full context or the big picture and be really focused on, okay, how do we minimize the threat from this virus? Uh, but also how do we do so in a way that doesn't undercut everything else in our lives? And I do think that the way we're addressing it is undercutting everything else in our lives and is not anywhere near the most effective way even to fight the virus on its own terms. So, and I, I want to cover this from the perspective of what's the goal? And that's often I find bad thinking begins with a lack of clarity about the goal. So here the the broad topic is what is our COVID-19 goal and is it eradication or is it management? I'm going to argue it should definitely be management, but first we even have to know that there's a choice. So what's the path forward on COVID-19? This is the big question. You hear some people saying, oh, we need to go back to work. I'm one of those who says that generally, although I think it needs to be done in a specific way. Some people are saying, no, we need to be locked down uh, for a a long time uh, more until we can really deal with this thing. And the, the, the path that we're on is what I call indefinite universal isolation. Now, we hear right now from the White House that the goal is the end of April. Uh, but as we've seen, those goals are not uh, definite goals. And if you look at what's leading the, the thought and the action, it's this universal isolation policy with no particular end date. So Anthony Fauci, who's one of the big the most influential people on this issue said, I think it was last week, and this this I think is really bad to think of it this way. He says, if we get to the part of the curve where it goes down to essentially no new cases, no deaths for a period of time, I think it makes sense that you have to relax social distancing. So think about that. He's saying when we have no new cases and no even no deaths, that would be crazy. I mean, if you said, okay, we're going to have we're going to be a lockdown until we have no deaths from the flu. You'd say, okay, well, we're never going to end it, right? But then no new cases is worse because a case just means a diagnosed infection. And we know there are lots of people who have infections who have not been diagnosed. So then it this goes flies totally in the face of even testing, which it has to be a huge part uh, of the goal. And 
So there's this kind of, I mean, that's a really indefinite. I mean, that's basically permanent universal isolation, but slightly more modest, but still very dire. As a prescription, Bill Gates says, until the case numbers start to go down. So again, case numbers. Until the case numbers start to go down across America, which could take 10 weeks or more, no one can continue business as usual or relax the shutdown. So this is this is saying, this is, I mean, really dire. We're seeing these incredibly systematic, negative, and, and in many ways, permanent kinds of damage being done to the livelihoods of really hundreds of millions of people. And the, the dominant idea is, yeah, let's continue this indefinitely till we get the cases to zero or the deaths to zero or something like that. So we really need to be clear, what is our goal? And the, what's been happening, I think, is that there are two very different goals that have been discussed and we're not clear on which is on what we're really trying to do, and they're often mixed together. So I'd say the two goals are one is eradicate the virus, and two is manage the virus. These are two very different and contradictory goals. Now, interestingly, the thing that we've really been sold on is managing the virus. So initially, we were told the goal is to manage the virus. We can't really contain it, can't eradicate it, but we can flatten the curve. So this means if we slow the spread of the virus, then that will mean less strain on hospital resources. And so we'll all basically get it, but we'll get it distributed over time. And that has a definite uh, logic to it. But what's really happened now is what we seem to be talking about is really eradicating the virus. You hear like we're declaring war on it. We're going to win no new cases, these kinds of things. And this is, you know, Bill Gates talking about there's no middle ground. And he has this, I think this is a insult to what people like me are saying and what people want. But he's saying there's no middle ground. It's, you know, you can't say to people, quote, hey, keep going to restaurants, go buy new houses, ignore that pile of bodies over in the corner. We want you to keep spending because there's maybe a politician who thinks GDP growth is all that counts. It's very irresponsible for somebody to suggest that we can have the best of both worlds. So he's saying, I mean, he's really on this eradication uh, premise, or at least he's not really distinguishing himself from it. And he's saying, and that that position definitely has the moral high ground right now. He's talking about it like, oh, well, if, you, if you're questioning these lockdowns, yeah, you're just supporting this pile of bodies all over the place. And I want to give you five facts and I'll go through them quickly. These are five, I think, almost universally recognized facts, but they're not being integrated properly. Because I think if we recognize these facts, we have to recognize that there is that, that the goal we're pursuing is very, very uh, wrong. So fact one is that this virus is highly contagious, and that includes it, it, it gets uh, transmitted even when people do not have symptoms. So why does that matter? Well, that matters in terms of eradication is, means that the only real ways you can eradicate it are if you, if you have a vaccine, and we're expecting that to be non-existent for at least 18 months, or if you could uh, contain it early. So if you really think about eradication, you either need a vaccine, which is far away, or you contain it early. And this leads to fact two, which is that it's not contained. It's, it's already incredibly widespread. So we can say, we wish this weren't true. Maybe it would have been possible to eradicate it earlier if the Chinese had done the right things. That's, there's some plausibility to that, but right now it is incredibly widespread. And so the implication is it cannot be eradicated but also avoiding it for the next 18 months 
is cost prohibitive for almost uh, everyone. If you have something that's contagious, like avoiding it is a very costly thing. Now you could become a total hermit. Some people can afford that if they have enough resources and they don't have many ambitions, but hermits can can avoid things like this, but it is, we're talking about 18 months. And this is another key implication that when we're thinking of policies, we really need to think about what can we do for 18 months? And one of the things that's, I think, dishonest about the lockdowns is people are acting, they, people are led to think, oh, well, it's just two weeks. It's just four weeks. But if you're really trying to do anything like eradicate it, then, or dramatically reduce it, um, and you have to think, whatever you're doing, you have to think about how long is this going to last? And so one point of honesty we need is what's the plan for 18 months, given that this thing is very uh, contagious and it's already widespread. And this connects to fact three in terms of where does it make sense for people to isolate and for how long. This is a virus that's disproportionately dangerous to the fragile and elderly. So it doesn't mean that it's not dangerous to anyone else, but it is far disproportionately dangerous to the fragile and to the elderly. And so the implication of that is selective isolation makes infinitely more sense than universal isolation. The people who are at the greatest risk, it makes more sense for them to engage in isolation. And also, they are the biggest burden to the hospital system. I don't like talking about it in those terms, but it's in terms of the, if you're worried about the hospital system being overloaded, it's the people who are most vulnerable that are going to overload it. So it's most important if you're spreading it out, that you spread it out uh, among them. And yet our whole discussion, I keep I keep emphasizing this because it's crazy that we just insist on universal isolation. And we do these crazy things like bring co- kids are at college where they could be spreading it among themselves and most of them would be totally fine and they'd be developing immunity, which helps in the long run. And instead, they, many of them who might have it are being sent home to live with their far older and more vulnerable parents and often mixed with their grandparents. Like This universal isolation is just so irrational. Now, a good, a good voice on this, there's a guy named Dr. David uh, Katz. So you can see some information here. Now, I don't agree with this totally. He has this total harm minimization framework, which I think is it's too collectivist for me. I think we, we should be thinking of it in terms of how do we leave people free as much as possible and then what kinds of behavior uh, restrictions make sense for some amount of time. But what he's at least thinking of is what he calls a selective interdiction. So really focusing on who are the most at-risk groups and then how how do we have the most protection and restriction of their activity so that there's not this massive harm that's being done to everyone. That's completely unsustainable if we're talking about an 18-month period. So he's somebody to check out, David Katz, MD. Now, fact four is really interesting. And this is one of the things that's promising that points to certain strategy, which is that the danger of this virus, like every virus, is proportional to dosage. This is sometimes called the viral load issue. And this is a kind of common thing that's been known forever about different diseases, but it's super, super important in its implications. The basic idea is if you get exposed to it in a smaller quantity, so even if you can't avoid it, if you can get exposed to it in a small quantity, that's much better than getting exposed to it in a big quantity because once you get in a small quantity, you at least develop some immunity to it and your body can fight it off. But if you get exposed to a massive quantity, 
uh, it's harder for your body to fight off. And I think this is why we're having these really tragic things with healthcare workers who are just getting exposed to huge amounts of it without proper protection, which is its own travesty that this has been allowed to happen. And But you're seeing like their dose or their viral load is so um, is so high. So the implication of this is that there's enormous potential, not in complete isolation, which is just cost prohibitive for most people, uh, but in terms of what are low cost methods to reduce the quantity of exposure. And here, my expertise is not at all in what are the best methods. We need specialists for that. But uh, in terms of how to think about it, if you know that there's that there's this dosage issue and you know that reducing exposure is a hell of a lot lower cost than eliminating or completely avoiding exposure, it's very powerful to be looking at what are the things we can do to reduce the exposure. And so I, I'm sh masks undoubtedly have some role in this. Not that they're a cure-all, but they obviously have some role. Uh, social distancing. Um, and then there's also, and I'll bring up a quote about this in a minute, things like can you flush your your um, sinuses, like with neti pots, if you're familiar uh, with that kind of thing, like if the virus is living in your sinuses or in that area, can you use techniques that people have used in places before they had antibiotics, before they had antivirals, that will, it won't eliminate it, but it'll reduce it and it'll help your immune system. And your immune system is really like the hero in these things. So anything we can do to make our immune system do better, including less exposure to it. So, and one, one instant application of this that should really be considered, and I'll sh share a quote about this, is controlled low dose exposure. So it may make sense. Can we actually infect ourselves with it? Or some of us, particularly the younger among us, can we, if we know we're going to get infected, can we control that and have it in low doses? So then we can develop immunity. And that might be the next best thing to a vaccine which we definitely don't have for uh, a while. But we really need to recognize the fact that dosage matters a lot and that has a lot of implications. So there's a, um, I wanna share with you two quotes that I thought were um, insightful. And uh, this is you know from, from different people. So one is a physician, one is an uh, uh, economist. And so the, there's a general observation that I have, which is that dosage and viral load are barely mentioned at all. And there's this false dichotomy or false alternative of, oh, either we're going to, uh, either you get it or you don't get it. Whereas no, the the amount of it that you're exposed to makes a huge difference. So this is uh, Shahid Insaf, who's a, a, a friend of mine on Facebook. And he's he's really interesting. He has a, I should say a little bit about his his background and he, he allowed me to, uh, to share this, but his background, interestingly, he has a lot of, he grew up in India and he has a lot of experience uh, working in places where he had very limited access to antibiotics and to certain modern medicine. So while he's a complete practitioner of modern medicine, I think people in that position, they often learn a lot about, are there other things that you can do? In, not in place of, but in addition to uh, you know, different kinds of medications to say, reduce the load on the immune system or boost the immune system. So here's his, uh, I'll read this quickly, but I think this is, I can't say that all of this is right, but this is the right way of thinking about it. So he says, I've kept relatively silent about this issue, but I've had enough. Here are my thoughts as a physician, a psychiatrist, and as a former resident of India, a place where a new pathogen lies in wait 
uh, every five steps. So just one qualifier. So he says he's a practicing psychiatrist now, but he's had a very extensive career as just a general uh, physician and still does that kind of work. One, viruses are common entities. At any given time, there are trillions of viruses and bacteria that are potentially in contact with your skin and mucous membranes. Two, two things prevent these pathogens from causing constant infections. A, a person's natural immunity. B, the lack of a substantial viral load. Three, airborne viruses don't create fulminant disease as soon as they are inhaled. They settle in a person's mucous membranes in the nasal passages, sinuses, and pharynx. I think that's the right pronunciation. There is a period of incubation lasting a week to two weeks during which they grow. Four, when a critical mass of pathogens is reached, it overwhelms the body's immune system and enters cells through specific receptors. Five, in the meantime, the body's initial defenses, such as macrophages, have already launched attacks against the pathogen, and the body is in process of creating antibodies. Six, so a person's primary goal and concern, the only thing that's in his or her control, is to reduce their individual viral load, and he emphasizes viral load in caps. Seven, this can be best achieved mechanically by using a neti pot to flush out as much of the virus as possible and to gargle with an effective agent containing alcohol, such as Listerine, which kills a lot of the virus. Eight, wearing a mask as much as possible can also help in reducing viral load. Nine, exposing oneself to the virus and then dramatically reducing the viral load with the above methods is the only way to assist one's own immune system to develop natural defenses to eventually fight and become immune to the virus. 10, the above method may still be insufficient in immunocompromised individuals who may need to exercise more caution. And I just want to add, because Dr. Insoff uh, asked me to emphasize this, although I don't think it really needs emphasis because I think he's clear, but he's saying he's very clear that, he just wants to make clear that he's not saying this is a not a big deal. It is it is a big deal, and it's particularly a very big deal to immunocompromised people. And he's not saying that this is a cure-all or magic thing, but that this can improve our probabilities. And I really appreciate this focus because there's a certain childish quality that's going on where I think we think, yeah, we don't want this disease to exist. This disease shouldn't exist. Let's eradicate it. Let's get rid of it. And But are we able to actually do that in a way that's consistent with our overall benefit? And no, we're not able to do that. So we need to be adults and recognize there is a new deadly virus in the world that we wish didn't exist, but it does exist. And so what are we going to do uh, about it? And this is where we need to manage it intelligently and keep these kinds of things in mind. And so he he said, and this seems provocative, but it makes sense to me. Uh, he says, I'm a physician who has a private practice and I've been working through this event with my entire staff. I want someone to come in who has coronavirus so I can be exposed to it. I clean out my passages twice or three times a day with a neti pot. I gargle twice a day with Listerine. I've instructed my staff to do the same. That is the only way my staff and I can become immune to it so as to help others safely. Nobody, nobody emphasized can hide in a concrete bunker for months to avoid this. It is going to afflict everyone either this season or the next. So this strikes me as this is a very adult and and thoughtful way of addressing this versus saying, yeah, let's let's I want to be in a bunker and I want everyone else to be in a bunker uh, also. And the the broader point here, at least one broader point here, is there's just enormous potential value in anything we can do to improve our immune system's ability to handle this. So whether it's it's reducing the viral load, the dosage, or whether it's anything we can do to increase our immunity. And this is where we really need guidance from experts, but it's really striking to me that there's so little talk about what can we do to make ourselves 
more resilient and what can we do to decrease uh, our exposure? And that's that's really a, a crucial issue. And with that in mind, that gives me a lot more confidence in things like masks and distancing and it because it it doesn't make me think, oh, I'm going to avoid it. But it does make me think, oh, well, I can lessen my exposure and I can lessen other people's exposure. Plus, I can slow the spread, but I can do these in a low cost way. Now, one application of this idea of viral load is by an economist named Robin Hansen. And he he is an advocate, an advocate of what's called variolation, which has to do with um, which has to do with deliberately exposing people to very small doses. And so he says, as soon as your body notices an infection, it immediately tries to grow a response while the virus tries to grow itself. From then on, it is a race to see which can grow biggest fastest. And the virus gets a big advantage in this race if its initial dose of infecting virus is larger. This isn't just a theory. The medical literature consistently finds strong relations in both animals and humans between initial virus dose and symptom severity, including death. The most directly relevant data is on SARS and measles, where natural differences in doses were associated with factors of 3 and 14 in death rates. And in smallpox, where in the 1700s, low variolation doses given on purpose cut death rates by a factor of 10 to 30. For example, variolation saved George Washington's troops at Valley Forge. So why are we not considering this? We really need to consider this. We really need to be adults and look at what are our options in the full context and not let's hunker all hunker down and stop producing and stop living and hope that a vaccine is out in 18 months. That's already being uh, catastrophic. And fact five is that minimizing the threat from this particular virus is one of many values. This is a this just is a, such an important thing philosophically that gets lost where they say, oh, well, we, we want to save lives. But this is, you have to keep in, in, in context, what is everything else that's involved in preserving and benefiting people's lives? And so if, we, if we're talking about, oh, we're going to save lives by stopping activity for 18 months, you're going to destroy lives both in their literal length, but you're going to destroy the, the whole quality of people's life, which is the reason that they want to live. And so the big implication of this is we need the policy, whatever policies they are, they need to fundamentally leave us free to pursue values, including our livelihood. And one perspective on this is it's much better to have specific behavioral guidelines in pursuit of our values, such as something like distancing or even wearing masks. That's infinitely better than like a universal order in terms of, oh, no, you have to do this thing. So, oh, you have to be in your house, even if you judge that's irrational because you're you know, you're not able to get fresh air. It's hard to be healthy. You're not being exposed to sunlight, which seems to be a big deal in dealing with viruses. You're concerned that you might contaminate or be contaminated by others that you're locked down with. No, your judgment doesn't matter. You just do that. You know, you have a business that could go bankrupt and that's going to totally impede your ability for the next decade or two. No, none of that matters. All that matters is there's a problem and we want to lock things down. And if you question that, then you must want to kill a bunch of people. Like that mentality has to end. We need, you know, we just need a total shift. And so the overall, I think of it as we need to think of the goal as not eradication or elimination or avoidance. It's 
intelligent management. And so we think of things like selective isolation, exposure reduction, immunity boosting, freedom, but we're intelligently managing this as part of intelligently living our lives and trying to flourish in a free country. And we want the country to stay free. And it's only going to stay free if we recognize the value of freedom and flourishing while we're thinking about this virus. And part of it is recognize reality, recognize that we would not, we're not happy that things are the way they are, but there's a new threat in the world and, and we cannot avoid it fully. We need to manage it intelligently. And if people, if people who are on the premise of eradicate this, get rid of it um, at all costs, do not give them the moral high ground. That is not a mature or moral approach. That's a profoundly immoral approach that f fixates on this one thing of let's avoid this virus, which that is a value, but let, like, let's, let's avoid it. Let's prevent ourselves from getting it. Uh, at all costs. That doesn't make any sense. And it's time for that position to lose its moral standing. And I'll emphasize again, the universal isolation position needs to lose its moral standing. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's almost universally accepted, but it makes no sense. So if people say, you'll see this where they say, didn't you see what happened in New York? How can you be against, be against lockdowns? Well, whatever else you can say, it might be that the measures, the, the selective isolation measures weren't strict enough. But why do you assume that the universal isolation measures need to be universally strict? And that's leaving aside all the mass destruction that's occurred in trying to prevent the spread uh, at all costs or at almost all costs. So I'm really, I'm going to keep emphasizing this selective isolation versus universal isolation, as well as these other points because it's so crucial to intelligently managing this. And right now we are not intelligently managing this. And I wish I could say, oh, it's just one person or one party or something. But I think in general, there's a lack of this approach to intelligent uh, management. It's being oversimplified as, oh, we care about the economy. We care about lives. No, of course we care about lives. But the question is, what's the right way for life to proceed with this new threat? How do we intelligently uh, manage it? Okay, that is uh, today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Also, if you are interested in any kind of virtual speech, I used to do a lot of speaking and I hope to do that someday, but we're all on lockdown right now, so I'm not doing much in-person speaking, but I've been doing virtual speaking at... Uh, very discounted prices. So if you'd like me to speak to your company or organization, this could be a great time. So just contact me at alex at alexepstein.com. And if you enjoy this show, and more broadly, if you like the activities that I and the rest of the Center for Industrial Progress uh, do, you can consider becoming a contributor, which we call an accelerator. And just go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. And you can learn all about the big plans that we have for 2020, how those plans have been threatened by the current situation, but that how but how by becoming an accelerator you can uh, accelerate those plans and you can help us reach really tens of millions of people this election year with a rational and pro-human perspective on energy issues. So again, that's industrialprogress.com/accelerate. Also, eager for any kind of feedback that you have on the new format 
I won't be too sensitive if you're critical of it, but I hope in general people like the video. Let me know if you found the slides helpful. One more thing, if you want to be on our mailing list, go to alexepsteinlist.com. That's alexepsteinlist.com and subscribe. All right, I'll be back next week with a bunch of crucial topics. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.